Welcome to The Deciders with Renee Frazier. I'm Renee Frazier, the founder and CEO of Frazier Communications. We're the leading woman-owned and woman-led advertising and communications firm in Southern California. At Frazier, we specialize in changing behaviors to positively impact society in both the private and public sector. Most recently, we've been doing a lot of communications around COVID-19, working very closely with the L.A. Department of Public Health. But in the show, The Deciders, we feature leaders, journalists, change agents in their communities. We ask people to share their stories and share information that can guide us as we build our businesses and as we participate in our communities. Many of you know my firm handles across the state of California a campaign called Talk, Read, Sing. It changes everything. It is a campaign with television, radio, outdoor, digital, experiential, a lot of social media funded by First Five California, which gets its funding from tobacco tax. That campaign is designed based on brain science related to young children. We know the early years can make a true difference in a child's trajectory, their ability to get to read by third grade, their ability to graduate from high school, and then there are all kinds of repercussions. We also know there are many health repercussions. Well, my guest today is a reporter for the Washington Bureau of the New York Times, who is going to be talking about child poverty and that relationship to the science of the brain science. The gentleman is a wonderful man named Jason DeParle. He's the author of two books about poverty and immigration. He has recently written in the New York Times about America's high levels of child poverty and the fact that 10 million children are living in this country below the poverty level. And sadly, with COVID-19 and the consequences, we see that increasing. Please welcome today my guest, journalist and author, Jason DeParle. Jason, welcome to the show, The Deciders. Hi, Renee. Nice to be with you. Jason, in your recent New York Times piece, you talk about the fact that child poverty in the United States is 65 to 90 percent higher than in the other countries like Australia, Britain, Canada and Ireland. Why do you think we have such high child poverty rates, even though we are a very wealthy country? Well, because our government does less to reduce poverty than other governments. The government is just not focused on it. Do you think uh, it relates back to our belief system as a nation and uh, the way we, we look at capitalism? I think there's at least two factors that have historically uh, guided the government response. One is Americans are more distrustful of government than their Western European counterparts. So um, our government is smaller. And I think our population historically has been more ethnically diverse and research has shown that the more um, ethnically diverse the population you have, the less uh, the government will spend on anti-poverty measures. Um, it's often seen by taxpayers as going to um, people other than them, different from them. So I think that's also been a factor in, in, in uh, social policy. Oh, that's interesting. I uh, I never heard that before. So, in a- oh yeah, if you look at the the um, uh, there've been state by state analyses, and if you look at the states that have the lowest uh, uh, social safety net spending, tend to be those with the highest uh, levels of minorities. You know, hmm. White tax. To put it bluntly, white taxpayers have um, historically been unwilling to support generous programs for people they see as. Um, minority recipients. 
nice. What about California? I'm asking you, I'm putting you on the spot. One would expect, I mean, we have a very high incidence of uh, people of color, but I think we also have a lot of good social programs. No? Um, yeah, California has um, historically been um, uh, a higher benefit state. You're, um, uh, I would say it's an outlier. Yeah, I think uh, if, you, if you look at um, the old uh, black belt states running basically from Texas, Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina, um, Kentucky, uh, mm-hmm. Tennessee, you'll see that pattern. I see that strip there. I understand. Mm-hmm. Well, going back to the article, one of the things I liked about the the article, by the way, was called the coronavirus, Gener- coronavirus generation. Uh, and we know that the virus, uh, as you as the subhead says, doesn't sicken children as much as adults, but it can still destroy their futures. And uh, just to cut to the chase, this is really about a child allowance as a solution, uh, money to families as they raise their children. And I thought it was interesting that you started with a, an empirical case, the Cherokee Indians that had a casino. And when they started to share those profits, there was a dramatic impact on the children and on the families. Could you share that? It, it was a fascinating um, study. Uh, it's what social scientists call a natural experiment. Um, uh, a group of researchers were set out to study rural school children in, in, in North Carolina. And a few years into their experiment, part of the group they were studying involved a, Cher- a Cherokee casino, a Cherokee population, Cherokee nation. They started the casino. The casino threw off profits, and they began paying them out as part of a guaranteed income every year of about $4,000 per family. So it wasn't what they – they didn't set out to study what would happen if you gave some kids $4,000 and didn't give it to other kids, but that grew up naturally in the midst of this experiment. So they had the data and they studied it and the kids did much, much better than um, other similarly situated children. They went farther in school. They had fewer uh, crime and arrest problems. They had fewer mental health issues. They uh, were healthier. They got better jobs as adults. Um, They've been following these people now for 30 years. So they have uh, a a real detailed long-term evaluation. All right. So it had impacts on healthcare, incarceration, all kinds of uh, longer term impacts in those families where there was a was there was a, a subsidy, if you will. And a lot of it went to children, I gather. As- you know, and it had the most impact on families that were below the poverty line. So families that were already even, say, at 150 percent of the poverty line, low income, but not poor. It didn't giving them the extra income didn't make much difference with them. What it really did is those families that were below the poverty line, it, w- it, it was enough to really make a, 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 a difference in their lives, especially in the way the parents related to the kids. Um, it, it, it took some of the stress off of the parents and it improved both the parents and, and the children reported better interactions after they got um, that little bit of a cushion. So, you know, when the wolf wasn't quite at the door as much, um, the, the, the emotional life of the family, I think, became healthier makes, and more supportive. Makes a lot of sense. It takes away some of the stress and anxiety that might end up being a, a problem in the family when they get that. I, I also note that you in the article talked about there are at least 17 countries uh, in the in the world that offer child allowances. And uh, this tends to be uh, they pay to both poor and middle class folks. So 
what's the essence of the idea there? What's the philosophy that uh, drives countries to do that, like Canada and some of the others? I think it's twofold. It's one, they, it costs money to raise kids. Kids are expensive. And two, that society has a shared interest in seeing them thrive. That kids are, we all, we all depend on the next generation and um, seeing them go farther in school, become more productive, stay out of trouble. It's something that we all have an interest in. So um, yeah, countries generally, wealthy countries generally offer a subsidy for them. Yeah. You know, one of the things I think that people don't realize is uh, even uh, limited periods of poverty can have a lasting effect on people and can have a, a dramatic impact. There's a concept I've talked about on this show before called the four aces. These are when children have very bad childhood experiences. Someone dies, someone's shot, uh, somebody has a drug overdose. Those create a, a physical impact on the child and actually predict health outcomes. So we know that they're really serious, but I think many people see poverty uh, as a stage, not as a, a fate for people. And, and that's a concern. They think it's short term, so therefore it's gone away. But in reality, it can be a condition for a long period of time in families. Uh, well, I've been covering poverty for the New York Times for about three decades. When I first started uh, on the poverty beat at the New York Times, that um, wasn't widely understood yet about the long-term effect of poverty on kids. As, as you say, it was seen as lots of people go through hardship. But the United States has more, the, the framing of it was the U.S. has more poverty than other countries, but it tends to have more opportunity. So maybe we have more kid, poor kids at any given point in time, but the kids have more opportunity to rise up out of that. And I think for two reasons, that framing doesn't work anymore. One, as you say, even a short-term stay in poverty can have lifelong effects, can be life-damaging throughout a child's life. That's one reason why that framing doesn't fit. And the other is I think uh, the evidence has emerged over the last few decades that you know, our mobility is not as superior to other countries as we thought, that you know, there's less class mobility now than uh, at least than there used to be, or at least that we, we, we thought there used to be. So um, yeah, poverty isn't, is not so easily, is, it no longer seems like a, a child of poverty no longer seems like a fate one can easily escape. It's a really good point. I mean, if you lift the floor, right, for people and they're not deep in poverty, you give them more of an opportunity to get access and to get out of poverty. Um, I also think that, you know, we've created this very big discrepancy, right, in the, in the American uh, economy and socioeconomically, very wealthy class. And then the, the middle class and the poor keep getting poorer. They're not catching up and children are impacted by this. Well, there's been a longstanding strain of thought and social policy that worries that providing people with subsidies can become, can induce dependency, can become habit forming. Yes. That if you give aid to children, to the family when the kids are young, you're encouraging that family to rely on, on aid. But um, as we were just talking about with the Cherokee experiment, that I think there's growing evidence that the opposite can be true. If you give people enough support for the kids to have a, a minimally healthy childhood, um, then they're going to be less likely to to come on to aid as adults. And that's been shown in that Cherokee example, but in a number of other natural experiments as well, including the early rollout of food stamps that found when children got compared children in counties that had the food stamp program with those in counties that didn't have the food stamp program um, and found that the kids who had access to it went farther in school, 
the same thing. Went farther in school, grew up healthier, had earned more as adults. Let me ask you the question they pose in the article, and that's really useful to know that, they, again, empirical evidence that it actually makes a big difference and it's worth the investment in our children. But the question is whether poverty itself harms kids or whether other issues that harm kids also cause poverty. Right. People have been debating this issue. Does, does it help to give kids money for a long time? Everybody's going to have a different opinion. Some people feel intuitively, yeah, it does. The parents will spend it and food and the kids won't be hungry and the kids and other people are going to worry, no, it's going to keep force the parents to quit their jobs or they'll spend it on alcohol or whatever. But now there's evidence. What, what we didn't have 30 years ago when I first came onto this beat is these, the results of these um, experiments where they've given one group of children um, access to subsidies and been able to compare them to a, a virtually identical a group that didn't have access to the subsidies. And repeatedly, again and again, they've found that the subsidies do help uh, on average. And this is uh, a science, as you say, a scientific finding. The National like Academy too. of Sciences last year issued a report saying that after 30 years of study, they've come to the overwhelming conclusion, bipartisan academic consensus, that um, income subsidies help poor children. Yes. And it, I, you know, it's, it's the family does the right thing. I think uh, there are some preconceived notions, as you just said, that the family might spend the money elsewhere on, on uh, alcohol or whatever it may be. But in reality, the evidence has proven that it actually does enhance the children. I, on, I also was on, averages, on, on average. average. So everybody right. can cite an, an anecdote that fits their bias. I can, you can, anybody else can. But what's great about having this body of evidence from the National Academies of Sciences, the highest uh, most prestigious uh, uh, empirical uh, organization in the country to say that on average, giving the income subsidies helps. It's great. I think that's really dramatic. I, I see, too, that Congress seemed to be curious about that. In 2015, they asked, asked the National Academies to consider this, right? And there were uh, 15 scholars, I believe, you report in your article uh, that that were able to conclude this. This is 2015. Is that the one you were just referring to? The study was authorized in 2015. It was issued in 2019. So uh, it took them four years to go through these mounds and mounds of evidence and to argue among themselves as to what it means and to come to a consensus document. That's what's so um, important about that methodology is it brings together the most respected social scientists from um, a variety of perspectives and they issue a consensus report. It's all of them to sign on to it. That came out last year. Very important. And you're right. Well expressed. It was a massive study in terms of looking at the research that had been done. And as I understand it, they also wanted to know what could we do to cut child poverty in half? And what, did they, what did they conclude? Yeah, Renisha, they looked at 20 different policies, 10 different, two expansions each of two different size expansions of 10 different policies, housing subsidies and expansion of food stamps. Um, more earned income tax credit, um, uh, expansion of Medicaid. Look, you know, all the major childcare, all the major anti-poverty policy ideas, and they found one far exceeded all the others in terms of its anti-poverty impact, and that was to provide a child allowance, an annual subsidy of roughly three thousand dollars a year um, to per child um, as an income supplement. Wow. 
Wow. So one example, and it was the $3,000 per child. I saw in the piece, I just want to cite one that statement you made, that that payment, annual payment of $3,000 per child would lift at least 38 times as many children out of poverty than a minimum wage increase. To yeah, right. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's um uh, would, I think it would cut the poverty rate um, by about f- more than 40% and the black child poverty rate um, by more than half. So, wow. you know, with a stroke of a presidential pen overnight, con- uh, the, the U.S. government could cut minority child poverty in half. That's a dramatic a charge that Congress gave like to the commission. It told the commission, what would it take for us to cut child poverty in half? The UK did that under Tony Blair, similar thing. They they set a 10-year goal. We're going to cut the child poverty in half. They achieved it. Um, the U.S. Congress noting that said, what would it take for us to do the same thing? Um, Canada recently did it. Um, so Congress said, well, what mix of policies would work to, for us to do the same thing? No single policy would do it alone. But the, um, the thing that came closest was a, a child allowance. And is there some progress at the uh, Senate level related to a child allowance moving? You know, if you'd asked me a couple of years ago, what are the chances of the this is not a U.S. enacting a child allowance? I would have said, you know, slim, slim to none. Um, uh, This is an idea that's been around for a long time, but always smacked of Western European social welfare and the kind of thing that would draw suspicion in the U.S. But we're in a very... um, interesting moment now of uh, concern about economic immobility that exists in inequality that existed even before the the outbreak of all the concern about the racial injustice. I think Mm -hmm. the two of them together um, have created a real opportunity for change. Um, The majority of Democrats now in both uh, houses of Congress uh, have signed on to a child allowance bill, and there are expressions of uh, support among some conservatives. So it's not uh, out of the question that something like this could pass in the way I would have thought it was a couple of years ago. I'm excited to hear that. You know, when you see other countries, really, as you said, Tony Blair and Great Britain, Canada, it'd be nice to see the United States make a statement. And given you're right, the issues around Black Lives Matter and racial injustice, now would be the time. Well, I- it obviously has support from the left, but from the right's perspective, some people on the right like it because it's not... Um, a government program where the, it's not paternalistic. It, it, so libertarians like it because it says, hey, we trust you as parents. We're mm-hmm. going to give you do with it what you want. Um, and it wouldn't be uh, solely targeted to, to um, uh, poor parents. It would go substantially into the middle class or so has some political appeal that way. And um, I think a lot of the, the um, calls for expanded child care have drawn some conservative um, ambiguity, at least because they, they discriminate in a way against stay-at-home parents. They don't participate as well. Whereas this, if you're a stay-at-home parent, you still get the benefit of this too. So for it has some appeal to religious conservatives. For it makes a lot of sense. It's across the board. Exactly. Right? So uh, do you have a sense of what income level it would go up to that, that families could get it? Oh, gosh. Um, there's different proposals, but uh, uh, probably over $100,000 for most of them. Start to so there would out. be a lot of people in the United States who would benefit from it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there's been some debate, you know, should everybody get it? But um, one theory is if you give it to everybody, you really like Social Security, you get the, the political buy in. But I think the thinking is you don't really have to give it to the top 30% of the earners or so. I mean, if you give it to the 
half and below, um, you, you probably get the political bang for it. You know, I should say, Renee, uh, we do have a version of this now in the tax code. We give something called the child tax credit to families up to $400,000 a year. What it doesn't do, though, is go to the neediest. It leaves out the the, 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 the poorest third from the full benefit of the, of the stipend. So we have it kind of upside down right now. Um, what, you know, the, what the Bennett bill would do is um, kind of flip that on the uh, flip that upside down and make sure that the, the people who need the money the most get it. Right. Just like the earned income tax credit goes to people making under $30,000. Why do you think the child tax credit didn't apply to the poorest? It was part of a, um, uh, a tax, the big ta- 2017 tax bill. Um, oh, 2017, and, right. Uh, it was increased and extended to upper income voters as a swap against the loss of some other tax advantages. I didn't realize it was that recent, 2017. So I see what you're saying. Yeah. What about Biden? Do you think he is, uh, this is on his agenda or a consideration? He has not taken a, a, a position one way or the other. And when I tried to contact his campaign to get a clarification, I couldn't get a response. Um, uh, Kamala Harris uh, was one of the Senate sponsors of the bill. So she's on record of supporting it. Good to hear. And I, my, I don't know. I have no inside information. My guess is if um, this came out of Congress, it's something that a Biden administration would probably sign. Um, Nancy Pelosi is strongly for it. Um, I think Schumer supports it. So I know there's, there's, been, there's, uh, there's deep democratic support for it. I think there is deep democratic support. I know I've been hearing about child poverty related to my first five LA work and, uh, a policy like this, uh, uh, with, uh, particularly with Feinstein. So I'm hoping that it will, uh, will, will arrive. Tell me about the objections. What are the objections to something like this? Oh, well, one is obviously the expense. It's not cheap. Um, I mean, it would cost $100 billion a year or so, um, which uh, at one point might have seemed um, enough to disqualify it from consideration. But given how much we're spending in other um, relief efforts now, I think um, the math, uh, the context has changed. Um, The other concern is that it'll have a work disincentive, that if you give people money regardless and don't require them to work. I mean, this goes to you, whether you're working, not working, employing, you know, the, the, the fear is that you're going to be incentivizing people not to work. Um, and it's true that whenever you do give money, you have some, at least some small work disincentive effect. Um, the National Academy studied that and, and found it to be minute, like much less, about a third of 1% uh, uh, cause people to work about a third of 1% less than they currently are. So a third of 1%. That's a yeah. very, their very earning, small earnings, earnings among recipients would fall by less than one third of 1%. So oh, very you, know, you have to trade, you have to trade those. Would you rather have a child poverty rate half the size it is and or that other one third of one percent of um uh, of working. Working. yeah it definitely a trade-off coronavirus has had an impact as well tell me about that uh, well coronavirus has had an Im- impact i think on um ev- 
raising everybody's level of anxiety about what kind of society we have and how much social protections there are. So I, yeah. I think the um, uh, co social context for passing something like this is uh, more favorable than it would have been uh, in an economy where um, people are more inclined to believe that everyone can pull for themselves and make it on their own. I think, uh, you know, it's an interesting point uh, that you made, Jason, the social context, not just the fact that more children are going to be pushed into poverty. You know, there was another piece in the New York Times about the uh, or magazine article about the number of children being homeless, unfortunately, has increased dramatically as a result of coronavirus and current conditions. But I hear what you're saying, the social context. I think you even reported in your piece that there are some conservatives who see it as maybe one action to take as a reaction. to Yeah, 15 conservatives, including a number associated with the American Enterprise Institute, um, the you know, prestigious right of center organization in Washington that come out in favor of a temporary child tax credit um, to uh, get us through the pandemic. So, you know, this doesn't, this no longer has the um, seeming overtones of a radical left idea. You know, this isn't socialism. It's got a group yeah. of conservative scholars um, uh, supporting it. Uh, I think that's what I was saying. I think there's a very different context uh, around this idea than there was a few years ago. Very, very positive. Well, thank you. This has been a fascinating interview about how we can cut child poverty radically with a child allowance. And we've been listening to Jason DeParle, who is a reporter uh, for The New York Times, author of two books about poverty and immigration, and has offered us some tremendous insights about how the social context has changed so that America is actually considering ways to reduce child poverty with a child allowance. Thank you all for listening to the Deciders with Renee Frazier. My company, Frazier Communications, is a full-service advertising and communications firm. Contact us to learn more through FrazierCommunications.com. And you can hear our shows as podcasts found on the website, FrazierCommunications.com. Please have a safe week ahead. Be sure to practice social distancing, wearing face cloths, and proper hygiene. Take care. Have a wonderful week ahead. This show is pre-recorded and furnished by Frasier Productions.